Let's pray together. Father, it is beyond our ability to communicate good to know you. And Lord, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you would cause us to feel more deeply, to inhabit completely our identity as your children. And Lord, I pray that you would make your word real to us so that we think of ourselves in these terms. Lord, cause us to look at our lives as defined by the scriptures, as described in the passage of scripture that's before us. Cause us to be those who conceptualize ourselves and think of ourselves as your people who are being refined through kind discipline, fatherly discipline, and mysterious providences, dark clouds behind which you hide a smiling face. Lord, cause us to know that you are at work, that all these things are working for our good. Make us those who are encouraged by the scriptures, those who boast in the hope of your glory. And we pray that you do this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 5, and we'll be looking together at uh, Exodus 5, 1 through 6, 9, through the first part of Exodus chapter 6. As you know, if you've been here, as we've been looking at Exodus, uh, the Lord has called Moses, and he has equipped Moses, and he sent Moses back to Egypt to bring the people of, of Israel out of Egypt, to deliver them from slavery. And if you've been here, you know that when Moses was in Egypt to begin with, the people of Israel had initially rejected him, and that caused him to feel some reluctance to go back. He didn't think that the people would listen to, to him. And so the Lord gave him these, these signs that pointed to the way that, that God was going to bring about his kingdom through the redemption that he would accomplish through Moses. And so equipped with these signs, Moses returns to Egypt, and at the end of chapter 4, we saw in chapter 4, verse 31, that when the people saw the signs that Moses did, they believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people. So chapter 4 ends on a high note with the people believing, but as we uh, discussed when we were in that passage, their rebellion is right around the corner. In fact, we are looking at their rebellion right here in Exodus chapter 5. And I just want to draw your attention to a couple of statements. If, if you look at chapter 5, verse 21, uh, the people are going to say to Moses and Aaron, they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. Okay, so in response to what's going to happen in this chapter... The people are not happy at all with Aaron and Moses. And then even after the first part of chapter 6, if you look at chapter 6, verse 9, we read here, Moses spoke thus to the people. So Moses is going to tell the people what the Lord is going to say. And then it says, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the people, Moses is going to 
be trying to work the deliverance that the Lord has sent him to accomplish, and the people are going to get angry with Moses, and they are not going to believe the Lord. And the reason I start with this is because I I want you to see and feel what's going on in these two chapters. In chapter 5, the Lord is going to bring the people of Israel into severe adversity. And that severe adversity is setting up what the Lord is going to declare in chapter 6. So just to to see this immediately, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go. And then just skip to verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh? And, and I, I, I envision a scenario where you have this, this man who's been in the, in the wilderness, in the desert for 40 years with a bunch of stinky, smelly sheep. And so he's probably not dressed in fine clothes and fine shoes. And he doesn't cut a very impressive figure by Egyptian royal court standards. And he comes marching in, Moses does, before the Lord of all the earth, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And he says, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the Pharaoh looks around and he, and he probably sees various representations of his own gods and, and various signs of the victories of his own gods. And his response to Moses is, who is Yahweh? that I should obey him. And then it's going to get bad for Israel, and the Lord is going to say over and over again in the part of chapter 6 that we're going to look at, I am Yahweh. So this is all about Pharaoh, as the title of the sermon says, Pharaoh setting himself against the Lord. And this is why we read Psalm 2 earlier in the passage. Because what we're seeing here is illustrating Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. The kings of the earth gather together together, and they take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. And, and, and they're thinking that they're going to throw off the bonds of the Lord and cast away his cords from them. That's exactly the way that Pharaoh is operating here in this passage. And the people of God, God is... God is putting them into this adversity, bringing them into this difficulty to give them an opportunity to do what Paul describes in Romans 5. So I want to put these words before you because this, I think, you know, Paul Paul says in Romans 15, in verse 4, he says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And I think Paul has in view the kinds of things that we're looking at. Paul wants us to look at Exodus 5 and 6 and learn and be encouraged by the scriptures. Learn specifically not to respond the way that Israel did. Okay, So Romans 5, Paul says, having been justified in verse 1, we have access through Christ into God's grace by faith in verse 2. And then he says this in verse 3. At the end of verse 2, let me start there. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, let's just put that in Israel's terms. To rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If we were to say to Moses, as he writes Exodus, what would it look like for the people of Israel to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? And I think he would say, well, when Pharaoh made their lives more bitter, when Pharaoh made their lives worse, when he took away the straw so that they had to work harder, 
If they had said, you just wait until you see what the Lord is going to do to Pharaoh. It's going to be even more awesome now when the Lord puts Pharaoh on his knees. It's going to be even more magnificent now. I think that's what it looks like to boast, to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then verse 3, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. This is what we see lived out by Joshua and Caleb. You know, they come back, and the other spies are saying, oh, they're so big in the land, and, and they're, so, they're so much more numerous than we are in the land, and this is a land that devours its inhabitants. And Joshua and Caleb respond, the Lord is with us. Look what he did to Pharaoh. He got us out of Egypt. He's going to give us that land. He's unstoppable. This is what it looks like. That, Paul is essentially describing that kind of reaction. So as we look at, at, if, at Exodus 5 and 6, we want to think about our lives. And, and I would submit to you that what we're trying to do here is just read ourselves into the narrative. Okay, because there are pharaohs out there today doing the same kinds of things that this pharaoh of Egypt is doing, and the Lord has accomplished a redemption, and he said to us, you conquer with the Lord Jesus, I give you access to the tree of life. You, be, you, you attain, in Paul's words in Philippians 3, a death like his, being faithful unto death, you attain a resurrection like his. And, and so there, there are these glorious promises, these hopes that are given to us, and we want to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and we want to boast even in our afflictions in the way that Israel failed to do here in Exodus chapter 5. So let's look now at Exodus 5 and just work through uh, the passage together. So in chapter 5, verse 1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. This is exactly what Israel is going to do. They are going to, first, in Egypt, they're going to hold the Passover. And through the Passover, they're going to be brought out. And eventually, these other feasts that are going to commemorate the Lord's mighty acts of salvation upon their, upon, on their behalf, those feasts will be instituted. So they're going to come out, and they're going to feast and worship Yahweh for his saving acts on their behalf. Verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And as we seek to leave, live faithfully in the world, and, and I suspect that there are many of you already experiencing this reality, people all around us are going to be saying, by what authority are you claiming the, the statements that you're making? You're, you're making these harmful statements and who is this God that you're talking about? They're going to be responding to us in exactly the same way that Pharaoh responds to Moses and Aaron. And then, as happens here with Israel, this is, I suspect, this is what you should expect. You should expect the seed of the serpent to talk like Pharaoh talks, and then you should expect the seed of the serpent to pursue the kinds of punitive acts of of retaliation that Pharaoh engages in here. So Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, 
the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And here I think we see Moses and Aaron, that last, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword, I think we see Moses and Aaron reflecting a fear of the Lord. The Lord has said, Moses, go do this. And Moses says, okay, if I don't do what God is... Moses, you remember, in, in the previous two chapters, Moses did not want to go do this. He sa- eventually says to the Lord, just send somebody else to go do this. What motivates Mo- Moses to do it? Well, in part, it's the fear of God. It's fear of God's judgment that motivates Moses to go in before Pharaoh. The Lord will fall upon us if we don't obey him in this way. Notice also that uh, Pharaoh is not getting a full disclosure of the plan of Israel being removed permanently, forever, and taken to the land of promise, which is clearly the plan. He's being told three days' journey into the wilderness, so there's a a discrepancy between uh, what the enemy is being having communicated to him and what the Lord intends to do. Verse 4, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And we can see here that Pharaoh thinks that Pharaoh and Egypt are are the determining realities of life. He thinks that what's important is his kingdom and his projects and his ideology, and so he's demanding that they comply with his commands. And then in the next verse, verse 5, Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you, take, you make them rest from their burdens. And the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. And at this point, you know, there's, there's no reasoning with Pharaoh. Pharaoh has his ideas. There's no appealing to Pharaoh. There's no trying to talk Pharaoh into, uh, you know, recognizing that if they're going to produce the same amount of material, they're going to need that straw that they were getting. No, that, that, that is not the issue. The issue is Pharaoh doesn't want to hear any of this Yahweh business anymore. And Pharaoh is concluding that because of this Yahweh talk, we need to make them work harder. And then he really articulates his 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 position in the next verse, in verse 9, where he says, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. In in the literary structure of Exodus chapter 5, verse 9 is right at the middle. And the statements that build up to verse 9 correspond to the statements that work out from verse 9. It's as though Moses wants to highlight how Typical it is that the seed of the serpent would say that God's words are lies. Has he really said you you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? You will not surely die. It's, It's the same thing. Don't pay any attention to these lying words from this God who claims to have created you. I know where you came from. 
Don't pay any attention to these lying words from this God who says that he created man male and female. We know that these things are in infl- These things are, are malleable. They're just learned behaviors. Don't pay any attention to this God whose book says marriage is between one man and one woman. Don't pay any attention to this God who says that two people of the same sex can't be involved with one another and be moral and loving. Don't pay any attention to this God who says he's going to bring you out from my thumb, being my slaves. Those are lying words. He says he's going to redeem you at the Exodus. And then I think, I think to develop what people would say in our day, those are lying words claiming that you need Christ as your Savior. Those are lying words that he's going to come back and raise the dead. We know that's not how, how the world works. We know that's not what's going. Those are lying words. Satan doesn't come up with new strategies. Satan doesn't come up with new strategies. And and you don't have to look far to find even people who can be described as biblical scholars who are basically saying the Bible is full of lies. Now, they come up with fancy ways to say that. They say that these are pseudepigraphical Writings, which is just a nice way to say lying writings. That's what it means, pseudepigraphical, liars. That's what it is. Or, you know, you have all these claims in the Bible, and and they they tell you that this is mythological or it's legendary or it didn't really happen this way. What they're saying is the same thing that Pharaoh is saying. Don't pay any attention to those lying words. So Pharaoh is trying to make the lives of the people of God more difficult to try to keep them from paying regard to lying words. And Satan will, will, he's going to employ the same strategy. He is not not a creator. He doesn't come up with new things. Don't allow the enemy to accomplish in your heart what he accomplishes in the hearts of the people of Israel. How, How would he accomplish it? Well, you start responding to people that are telling you the truth about what the scriptures say by getting angry at them. This is what Israel does across their history. The prophets, uh, Jeremiah, the people of Israel thought Jeremiah was the problem. Right here in in Exodus chapter 5, verse 21, the people of Israel think that Moses and Aaron are the problem. They thought that Isaiah was the problem. And eventually they thought that Jesus was the problem. And, And you can go across the New Testament and the rejection of the Apostle Paul and the persecution of the apostles is because people conclude, you guys are the problem. And then just look at, look at the persecution of, of Christians across history. People conclude, those people, talking about the Bible, they're the problem. That Satan is successfully achieving his purpose. And then also, 6-9, they did not listen to Moses. They didn't listen. They didn't believe Satan. Satan achieved his purpose. He got them to pay no regard to lying Words. So how do we resist this? We cling to the scriptures. We, we recognize Satan is trying to convince me not to believe the Bible. The Bible is what I need. And these people that are telling me what the Bible says and telling me what the Bible means, they're on my side. And, and I'm aligning myself with the faithful against the seed, with the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. So here we go. Uh, working out now from verse 9, really, we're going to see the same thing. I mean, we just saw uh, the taskmasters in, in verse 8. 
uh, making their lives more difficult. Here it is in verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw for yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. They're going to try to reason with him. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. What they're saying is, this is unjust. This isn't reasonable. And they're right, but that's not the point. The point is we have a conflict here. We have enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the issue is not the making of bricks. The issue is the Lord has said, those are my people, and I'm bringing them out. And Pharaoh is basically saying, nah-uh. And now we're going to see who wins. Verse 17, Pharaoh says to them, you're idle. You're idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Verse 19, the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Now, when you see that you're in this kind of trouble, here, here's, I think, what we need to return to. Here's what I think the people of Israel needed to return to. If, if they had been paying regard to what Pharaoh said were lying words, I think their minds would go somewhere like this. You know, the God that we worship, Yahweh, he said, let there be light, and there was light. And he said, let the waters be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it happened. So if he's saying, I'm bringing those people out of Egypt to the land of promise, that's what's going to happen. So contemplation of the scriptures, which, you know, they don't have the scriptures yet. Moses is, when this event takes place, but Moses is, it, surely... Uh, they're, they're aware of the traditions about the Lord, and, and, and Moses is with them. And so if, if they had contemplated God's mighty works in creation, and then if they had contemplated God's promises about redemption, if, if they, now, they don't necessarily know what the Lord is going to do for them, just like we don't know exactly how everything is going to look in the new heavens and new earth. We don't know. But Think about what the Lord's going to do. They're going to they're get to the Red Sea, and he is going to part the waters, and they're going to go through on dry ground. And then they're going to find themselves out in the wilderness with nothing to eat, and the Lord is going to cause manna to appear on the ground. And they're going to have no water, and the Lord's going to tell Moses, strike the rock, and water is going to come flowing out of that rock for them to drink. And then he's told them, I'm bringing to you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And in that land flowing with milk and honey, your, your flocks and your, 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 your herds are going to have everything they need to eat. And, and the rain is going to fall. And your wives are not going to miscarry. And I'm going to protect you. And it's going to be like the Garden of Eden. And, and I think that if they had thought about that, they, they could have said, 
this is not forever. The taskmasters beating us, the taskmasters making our lives worse without straw, this is not, this is not permanent. So what we need to do here is rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and believe that he's going to do it and patiently endure. And as we do that, we're going to get used to doing it this way. And that's where Paul talks about how perseverance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This is what Israel needs. This is not how they respond. And so in the next verse there in verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, Yahweh, look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. That's just false, isn't it? That's not what Moses and Aaron are up to. And, and yet, all of, all of us are tempted to respond. When somebody tells us what we need to hear, when somebody confronts us with the truth of the Scriptures, we're all tempted to have that rise up in our hearts. How dare you talk to me that way? How could you possibly presume to speak to me like this? This is how we're all tempted to respond, and we need to go to war on that response. And, and we need to, to gather around us people who are willing to courageously come to us and confront, confront us with the cr- truth of scriptures, the truth of the scriptures, an undistorted right reading of the scriptures. And then we need to pray for grace to respond humbly, joyfully, receptively to what they tell us. Now, I, I think in, in Moses' response here, it's, it's remarkable when you think about it, how, how honest M- Moses must be to portray himself like this. Because there, there's some good things that Moses does in response to this, but there's also some bad things in view of what's going to happen, right? So look at, look at the next verse. Then Moses turned to the Lord, that's good, and said, Oh Lord, that's good. So, so, this is, this is good for Moses to respond this way. The people are not responding this way. The people are saying, Moses and Aaron, you're causing our lives to be more difficult. Moses is saying, Lord, you're what I need. That's a good response. But what he says is, I think, not so good. He says to the Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Whoa, Moses. The Lord hasn't done evil to this people. I mean, that's a heavy charge. The Lord never does evil. And and I think that it's, I mean, this may sound crazy. I think it is a mark of Moses' sanctification that he recorded that he ever said such a thing, that he ever had such a thought that the Lord would do evil to the people of Israel. And then he says, and here again, I think we see that reluctance on his part to go, why did you ever send me? Moses, who else do I have that has been trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians? Who else that I have that's going to be equipped and learned such that you could write the Pentateuch? Who else do I have like you, Moses? Why did I ever send you? Because I've been preparing you for this your whole life, he could say. But Moses is not seeing any of this. In the midst of the adversity, Moses is discouragement, and, and uh, I, I, I'm not saying he's not a believer. I think Moses is a genuine believer, 
But here I think we see he's not operating on faith. Why did you ever send me? And then he says, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. And, and you know, I think this is like a, a child raging against their parent. You did this and you did that. And, and all the while, the parent has the whole thing planned, has all the good, the, the, the good laid out. It's all, I mean, we're, we're about to read in the coming chapters, everything that the Lord is prepared to do to Egypt and to Pharaoh to deliver these people. And, and here's the child raging against the wise and good father. Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We, we, I submit to you that we want to look at a passage like this and we want to say, Lord, help me to be somebody who in the midst of difficulty responds in a believing way, responds rejoicing in the hope of your glory, and even boasts in the midst of the affliction. And that brings us to chapter 6. So in chapter 6, it's almost like the Lord is responding directly to Pharaoh's question back at the beginning of chapter 5, when he asked there in verse 2, who is Yahweh? And so the Lord says here in chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. And I just want to, note, want to draw attention to how many first-person singular statements follow in this passage. It is so thick with, I will, I will, and they just come fast, one after another. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read through the passage, and then we'll come back and, and talk about it, okay? I'm just going to read Exodus 6, 1 through 9 here. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So these declarations from the Lord, what are they meant to do? They're meant to provoke faith, aren't they? They're meant like a, almost like a tirade that's meant, I think, to cause Moses to step back in the fear of the Lord 
and be overwhelmingly impressed with him and be confident that he's now going to carry through on his word. That's how I think the Lord means for his glorious revelation of himself to Moses to impact Moses' thinking. And if we are to be faithful, we must know this God. We must be confident of God in his awesome power. We, we, must, we must think to ourselves, he brought Israel out of Egypt. He, he brought them through the wilderness. He gave them the land of promise, though it was inhabited by seven nations, more numerous and more mighty than themselves. He did all that in the past. He raised Christ from the dead. He created the world. He's going to do for me everything that he says. And then our confidence in God's promises is what will bear us through the difficulties of our lives. And we see again how, Moses, uh, how the people respond in verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Moses is not excusing the people for their broken spirit and harsh slavery. I think what Moses is saying is, instead of thinking about the Lord, and instead of thinking about what the Lord would do, they, their spirits were broken and, and they couldn't rise above their harsh slavery. That's not a condemnation, a, a commendation of them. So let's, let's think just a little bit more about what the Lord says here to Moses. So I just want to walk through uh, with some explanation, 6, 1 through 8 here. So when the Lord says in chapter 6, verse 1, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, we know what's coming. These ten plagues that are about to be narrated are going to crush the gods of Egypt. They are going to, they're, they're going to beat down everything that Pharaoh is tempted to trust in, everything that Pharaoh relies upon instead of the Lord, the Lord is going to crush it. And then he is, Pharaoh is going to send the people out. And then in, in verses 2 and 3, uh, the Lord says something that, that uh, could easily be misunderstood. So verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but the ESV and really all English translations render this next clause, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And there, there are diff a couple of different ways to understand this. Uh, one way to understand this is the way of source criticism, which suggests that anytime we read of Yahweh in the book of Genesis prior to this event, it's, it's been smuggled in by somebody who's changed the text. I reject that explanation. I, I think that's wrong. Um, I think it's better if you think something like, like this. Uh, you remember, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, when Seth was born, then we read in Genesis 4, I think it's verse 26, then men began to call on the name of Yahweh. And then um, we read of Abraham, that Abraham began to call on the name of Yahweh. So I think it's better to look at this and say, well, Moses, who wrote Genesis and also wrote Exodus, has portrayed these guys calling on the name of Yahweh, and the name Yahweh occurs over a hundred times in Genesis, and many, many times on, on the lips of speakers, you know, faithful people in the book of Genesis, they're portrayed as speaking the name Yahweh. So it's not, I don't think, that they didn't know the name. I think a better way to understand this is to hear the Lord saying, I'm about to reveal more of my name. I'm about to reveal more of my character through the events of the Exodus 
And then in particular, in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, when, when Moses says to the Lord, please show me your glory, and then the Lord passes by, what the Lord does is he proclaims his own name. And he, and he announces, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then it's like he defines himself, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And, and it's this fulsome revelation of the character of God, and I think that's what the Lord is getting at. Not that he didn't reveal himself at all as Yahweh prior to this, but that through the events of the Exodus and through the Mount Sinai experience of the revelation of the Ten Commandments and the giving of the tabernacle and all the rest, and then what he says to Moses, more about the Lord's name is going to be revealed. And then uh, one, of, one of my friends, who's an Old Testament scholar named Dwayne Garrett, many of you may know him, he has proposed in his commentary on Exodus that this line could be translated as follows. So I'm going to read you Dr. Garrett's translation, but I want to acknowledge no English translation takes it this way, but here's how he proposes these words. So the ESV renders um, these Hebrew terms, by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Dr. Garrett proposes that we should understand rather the words to say, but my name is Yahweh, and then it's a question, did I not make myself known to them? And, and that's at least an interpretive possibility. So I think source criticism is totally wrong. Uh, I think it's, uh, we're moving in the right direction if we think that uh, the Lord is talking about revelation of more of his character, and I think maybe Dr. Garrett's uh, alternative translation um, should be considered. Uh, it, it's, a, it's at least a possibility. The Lord then rehearses what he did in the past in verse 4. I also established my covenant with them, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning we've seen at the end of Exodus chapter 2, those, those beautiful words about how in Exodus 2.24, God heard their groaning. God remembered the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so the Lord is rehearsing all this at this point. I've heard their groaning. I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. And so in verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. And he promises to bring them out to deliver them. And in the, near the end of verse 6, he says he's going to do this with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. If you were here for the call to worship, you know that Psalm 136 celebrates the Lord's strong hand and outstretched arm by which he brought Israel out of Egypt. I think from this point forward in the rest of the Bible, anytime you read of the Lord's arm not being too short to save, we're, we're remembering the, the exodus from Egypt. Or if we read, for instance, in Isaiah 53, verse 1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I think what Isaiah is indicating is the salvation that's going to be accomplished by the suffering servant, which will be fulfilled in Jesus, is going to be a fulfillment of the kind of salvation that God accomplished at the exodus from Egypt. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus or you don't think of yourself as a Christian, what we want you to know and experience is this God 
We want you to know God, and we hope that you'll be saved by the Lord's strong hand and outstretched arm. And we hope that his revelation of himself will inspire confidence in you, that you'll think to yourself, this God promised to bring Israel out of Egypt, and he did it, and he's promised to save me if I repent of my sin and trust in Christ, and I'm going to trust him to do it. We hope that you'll respond that way. We'd love to talk with you more afterwards if you'd like to pursue that further. And then the Lord says there in verse, uh, at the end of verse 6, when he refers to great acts of judgment, you, you may recall that when all this was prophesied to Abraham back in Genesis 15, he said uh, that Abraham's descendants would serve uh, an, another nation for 400 years, and afterward, he would bring them out with, with mighty acts of judgment, exactly what the Lord declares here. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. This is all aimed at communion between God and his people. It's all aimed at God's people having a new experience of what was lost when they were driven out of the Garden of Eden. A new fellowship between their God and themselves. That's what it's all aimed at. As I was thinking about this passage, I was, I was trying to think of examples of the kind of, of uh, faith and perseverance and steadfastness that, that Paul is calling people to in Romans chapter 5. And, and I, was, I was trying to come up with you know, a, a, good, a good example of, of something that we would all look at and say, that's noble, that's honorable, that's what I want to be like. And uh, I thought of this guy, maybe you've, you've heard of him, um, he's often referred to as Dick Winters, Richard Dick Winters. Um, he commanded Easy Company, a group of paratroopers who uh, parachuted in behind the German line uh, into occupied territory uh, in World War II. And um, uh, when he landed on the drop, when they, I mean, it's, it's amazing what, what these guys went through. He jumped out of an airplane, and um, it was night, and it, it was like, a, like a, a rain of bullets flying through the air. I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things. I don't know how anyone survived that jump. But on, on the way down, he loses his own weapon. And so when he hits the ground, he has no weapon. And they're totally confused. They, they, they don't land where they were intending to land. And so um, he, he's, he's without all of um, his, his company. And he cobbles together about 13 guys. And these 13 guys then prepared a plan of attack. He prepared a plan of attack. He, he put them in order, and he arranged the strategy, and they attacked a, a, a German stronghold that, that uh, the estimates are it was held by 500 German soldiers. 13 guys against 500 German soldiers. And... And then, you know, you, you, you ask yourself, where does that come from? Where does the readiness, the ingenuity, the initiative, the courage, where does that come from? Well, you know, we can, we can identify some things. He thinks the cause is right. He thinks the cause is good. We would, I, I would agree with him. Um, he's been well-trained, and he recognizes, yeah, this is bad. We're in a really bad situation but it's going to be awesome. 
and, and we're fighting for good things, and we're going to come through this. We're going we're to do what we can, or we're going to die trying. That, that's, that's his mentality. And in, in the preparation that he went through, they, they, they went through this very difficult training at, at Tacoa, I believe Tacoa, Georgia. Of the 500 officers who had volunteered, only 148 completed the course. Of the 5,000 enlisted volunteers, only 1,800 were ultimately selected for duty as paratroopers. All those guys knew about Pearl Harbor. All those guys were in agreement. What the Germans are doing is bad. 148 of the 500 made it through the training as to become officers. 1,800 of the 5,000 enlisted men made it through the training. What's the... Let me, let me just back this out into our, our own personal spiritual lives. What's the training? I submit to you that the training that the Lord is visiting upon you consists of the afflictions that you're going to be faced with, the difficulties, the trials, the struggles, the challenges of faith. That's, that's the training. And, and what we want to do is we want to nobly, honorably rejoice in hope and, and boast in our affliction, so that we come through ready, ready to do whatever the king sends us to do in the greatest of all causes. The, the Lord is forming Christ in us. And yes, there's going to be affliction. But yes, the reward is glorious. So glorious that Paul says that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. I mean, I think if you, if you had presented to those guys that didn't make it through the honor that would be heaped upon Dick Winters after World War II, the medals, the way that, the way that people would clamor to have him come speak, the, the way that, that the, the strategy that he employed with that 13 against those 500 continues to be taught at military academies. What, what they endeavored to accomplish and what they accomplished. I think those other guys would be like, I want to be in on that. I want to be in on that. And that's how I'm hoping we will respond. I want to be in on what the Lord is going. Can you imagine the Lord of heaven and earth? I mean, none of us deserve to hear these words. The Lord of, the heaven, of heaven and earth saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Father, you are worthy. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause the scriptures to encourage us. I pray that you would make us those who, who memorize the accounts of your mighty deeds in the past, who meditate upon the promises that you have made. Lord, cause it to be real for us in the midst of the affliction that even now, Paul says, the Lord Jesus is at your right hand interceding for us. And that when, when we don't know how to pray as we ought, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. And Lord, cause cause us to discipline ourselves, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit so that we rejoice in hope of your glory. 
so that we boast in the midst of our afflictions, so that we patiently endure, so that we have proven character, so that you can tell us to jump out of an airplane if you want us to, and we'll be ready to do it. Lord, we love you, and we want to live for you, and we pray that you would help us to discipline ourselves, to beat our bodies and make them our slaves, as Paul says, and we also pray that you would give us grace. We pray that you would so compellingly reveal yourself to us that we find you irresistible. We ask that you do it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's do it.